This is episode 34 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we are back with part two of Julie Huffman's awesome episode all about esophageal dysphagia. Uh, Julie Huffman is a speech pathologist at UNC Rex Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. She has 22 years experience in dysphagia evaluation and treatment in a variety of settings with current focuses in outpatient rehab, skilled nursing, and oncology services. She has a special interest in esophageal disorders as how they affect oropharyngeal swallowing for the last 15 years. She has been instrumental in devising new protocols to include consideration of the esophagus for both fees and MBS studies throughout the continuum of care in her hospital system. She has been teaching on the subject for over 11 years. Julie is currently pursuing research opportunities related to esophageal disorders and dysphagia, and she is a graduate of the University of Buffalo, just like me. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Um, Hopefully, Julie's first episode didn't completely knock your socks off, although I think it did for so many people. I've I've gotten so many messages like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't know this stuff. And I know everyone wants to reach out to Julie (laughs) with a million questions now, but hopefully the second part here will answer a lot of those questions because we kind of opened up the can of worms in the first part. And then now hopefully Julie's going to provide you with a lot more answers. I did want to split this up into two parts because I don't know about you guys, but I have probably like 97 half listened to podcasts in my iTunes, (laughs) but like, I don't know, I'll listen to something on a commute and then I stop it and then I never go back and finish it. Um, but I just wanted so badly to make sure that you guys heard both parts of these episodes. So I feel like, if you're like, oh, there's a new episode, I'm going to listen to it. Um, but I think this just, this episode like really challenged me so much as a clinician and I, and I, that's great. I mean, I think it should challenge all of us. I think there's a lot of SLPs out there that are very complacent in what they're doing. And I've been doing this for 20 years. I know all this stuff and hopefully this episode makes you realize like, crap, I got to keep up on what I'm doing. And even, even as much as we try to keep up, sometimes it's just so hard to get this information. So, um, this, this episode particularly really just made me step back and look a lot more at my, at my patient. I, I had a terrible work day yesterday. It was hor- like, I meant to finish recording this last night and I just couldn't. Yesterday was probably like the worst day in my career only because I just had three horrible fees back to back to back. Like they were s- such complicated, medically complex patients with lots of family involvement and doctors disagreeing. And it just challenged me from every angle. Like my brain was numb after the first one, then I had a second one, then I had a third one. But I just kept thinking of all this esophageal stuff and how I firmly believe there was a huge esophageal component in every single one of them. And just because on the fees, I wasn't able to provide the black and white answer, I think really bothered me. But I, I don't think it should, you guys. Like, Julie talks a lot in this episode, particularly about different um, GI assessments, and we should be fine with that. Like, okay, we, you know, I ruled out that I didn't see any oropharyngeal dysphagia, but clearly there was something major going on with a lot of these patients. So 
we've got to make the appropriate referrals. And that's okay. I mean, if we get them to the right doctor. Um, I spent probably two hours with a family yesterday. Just it was it was really evident that this was more of an esophageal issue. And, you know, we I spent so much time with the family and contacting a GI doctor and getting the right test ordered. And like I said, I felt so defeated during the day, but now that I've had some time to kind of reflect on it, that's really what we should do. And, and we shouldn't get we shouldn't get defeated when we can't provide the answer because I kind of did provide the answer. I said we need to go, you know, need to go see a specialist. Um, so, like I said, <laughs> I know everyone has just had their socks knocked off with Julie's episode here. Hopefully, this episode provides a lot more information. Um, you know, I, for me, it just made me step back from larynx land. Um, and there's only so much we can do as far as the oropharyngeal swallow sometimes. And, and I think what, you know, what Julie says is, can we really rule in an oropharyngeal dysphagia without ruling out an esophageal dysphagia? And as practicing clinicians, we have to consider all of that. So, um, I hope you guys love the second part of this episode. Uh, don't forget, um, I've had a lot of questions about wanting to get the show notes. So don't forget every episode, you can always download, download the show notes at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash S-Y-P podcast 034. So it's always bit.ly forward slash S-Y-P podcast and then the episode number. So um, don't forget, you can download those show notes. They're the same as last week. So if you got last week, you got them already. Um, but I mean, the references section is incredible. All the references that Julie posted. And at the end of this episode, we talk a little bit more about her course and the brochure and the brochure wasn't out when we recorded this interview, but it is now. Um, so you can, if you check out the show notes, that'll show you how to get the brochure for her course. If you're interested in learning more and also Julie's contact information is on there, Julie, I hope you're ready for, um, a target practice worth of emails. So, <laughs> um, all right. So just a few announcements first, before we get to the episode MedBridge, we're going to be doing a March madness end of the month, March promo. So that free upgrade to the premium package is back on. So for 95 bucks, you can get the free upgrade to the premium package, which includes all access to the CEUs, the home exercise builder, the mobile app, and the patient engagement handouts. So that'll be running all the last week of March. So if you've been emailing me or sending me messages about when that deal is going to come back, and I told you I didn't know, I honestly didn't know. So hop on that if you're interested. Um, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to our sponsor, EndoHD. Um, check out, they've, they've got this really cool new system and residual scale, coolest thing ever. So check that out if you guys are interested in fees and equipment. And lastly, our other sponsor is the MedSLP Solution. So whether you're a newbie, whether you're a oldie but a goodie in medical SLP, um, check out MedSLPSolution.com. It's a monthly membership site. Includes resources in the form of handouts, videos. We cover uh, CSEs. We cover cranial nerve exams. We're covering aphasia, dysarthria, um, all sorts of topics decided by the members. Um, and everything is evidence-based with lots of references to boot and all peer-reviewed to make sure that all of the information is up to date. So um, if you're interested, check that out at medslpsolution.com. And lastly, this episode with Julie is, this is just going to be great. You guys, this is like such a teaser though. So you may like just be obsessed with esophageal dysphagia after this and be dying to know how you can learn more. 
Well, you're in luck. Julie has three courses coming up. No, I know there's one in May in North Carolina, and then there's two in the fall. There's one in North Carolina and also one in Buffalo, New York. She's coming to see me. I'm so excited. Um, but go to carolinafees.com and check out her esophageal dysphagia course. Um, so if you are interested in hearing more from Julie, um, her course comes highly recommended by SLPs. I know a ton of my colleagues have said it's a great course and told me I have to go. Uh, so go to carolinafees.com or you can email Julie directly at huffro at me.com for a brochure. And Julie is graciously offering a discount for Swallow Your Pride listeners for her two-day courses when you use the code SYP at checkout. So that's at carolinafees.com. And you will receive $25 off your registration if you sign up in the month of April through carolinafees.com. So um, Julie was also invited to speak at ASH this year. So you can also catch her talking about esophageal dysphagia in Boston in November, which I'm so excited to hear. I'm just obsessed with this woman now. So um, hope you guys all love this episode. Uh, go check out her courses on carolinafees.com. Use that SYP promo code to get $25 off during the month of April. We can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how do we decide? So now I've told you, please decide if this yes. is primary <laughs> oropharyngeal versus esophageal. And people will say, well, how do you do that? And I've mentioned a bit of that already, but I'll go through that a little bit more. So, um, you know, like we said with that brain stem stroke, lateral medullary syndrome, et cetera, you know, is there the presence of neurologic findings or disease to really support what we see, um, you know, and, and then is the severity of we see, well, gosh, they had a stroke, but this is a whopping pharyngeal dysphagia, and that stroke doesn't seem to fit. It wasn't a brainstem stroke, et cetera. It doesn't really seem to fit with the findings. Um, this may, may make you realize that there's got to be more investigation. Um, are there clinical histories or indicators that would suggest a primary GI or esophageal disorder? Um, you know, what has the progression of the dysphagia been like, you know, is this something that's an acute change? Or if you dig a little bit more, like we said, was the person the last person at the table for <laughs> numerous years? Um, did they avoid eating meat and bread? You know, um, did they favor softer foods and liquids? Did they stop putting ice in their drinks? That's a big one. We know that icy cold uh, beverages and such can cause esophageal spasm. Uh, so people stop drinking cold liquids. Um, my, my parents no longer get ice in their drinks. And when they said, um, I was with them in a restaurant and they ordered, oh, we'll have water, no ice. My eyebrows went up. I was like, oh no, they're starting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but these are things we do want to think about. And then, you know, the oropharyngeal swallow, typically when you have an etiology, uh, that is causing a primary oropharyngeal dysphagia, that swallow is consistent. Okay. So the other thing is, is it episodic? A lot of folks are telling us, I occasionally have trouble. Once a month she chokes. Oh, well, she choked on a piece of chicken, um, you know, three months ago. You know, when it's episodic or intermittent, it's less likely to be a primary oral pharyngeal dysphagia. Um, you know, when nutrition and hydration are a concern, you know, with the oral pharyngeal swallow. It's usually because eating is a chore. It's really so much work to try to get um, that in. When it's something like pain or early satiety, the person is getting full early. They take three bites and they say they're full. Um, 
when there's any kind of pain with swallowing, when they get, when they feel like their stomach hurts or they get epigastric pain, et cetera, um, you know, there's much more cause for nutrition to be a concern or many more reasons with a GI dysfunction, actually. Um, you know, respiratory compromise when there is um, not a clear neurodiagnosis. We know that with new strokes, there's increased risk of respiratory compromise, but um, without that very clear neurodiagnosis, it's more likely from a GI source. Um, huh. So stuff coming back up and you don't have to know it. And uh, so I guess all of that, taking all of that into consideration, do I think it's oropharyngeal or esophageal? And is what I'm doing enough to go on or does the patient require further testing um, to really highlight and, and come up with a differential diagnosis? Yeah. So I, I think that's something. always the dilemma that, you know, we feel like we should be able to manage it, but mm-hmm. we should feel confident in sending them off for referrals too. And we need to, and yeah. we also need to know when we can't impact the a change in the swallow function. Um, you know, is the oral pharyngeal stuff, is it the chicken or is it the egg? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when, when it's not primary, we may do all of the greatest therapy in the world to address the physiologic changes that we see on that instrumental. But if that's not the primary problem, if it's really coming from something else, we're not going to have a big impact. Um, there. And, you know, I don't know, this has not been assessed. And a lot of the research I look at that's in the oral pharyngeal world, I'm immediately looking for, did they look at their esophagus? Did they talk about their esophageal history? But we don't know. Okay. So let's say the person does have a primary esophageal dysphagia. They have horrible dysmotility. And subsequently we think that that's the problem as to what we're seeing in the oral pharynx. Does pharyngeal exercise, would pharyngeal exercise be helpful? We don't know. We don't know. Um, we do know that if it's a cricopharyngeal, if there is cricopharyngeal involvement and you do a lot of pharyngeal squeezing, that is probably going to make it worse. Um, so uh, another study that I really liked, and now the, the title is escaping me, but um, that Peter Belofsky did, uh, otolaryngology. I love, love Peter Belofsky. And he looked at folks with... Um, Zanker's diverticulum and cricopharyngeal prominence and, and followed them over time and found that eventually, if that's not remedied, you get a dilated pharynx. You get a, you get hypotonicity of the pharynx. In other, and, and this makes sense, right? If your, if your little pharynx is trying to squeeze, squeeze, squeeze against something that's not opening, then eventually it may decompensate. And so, you know how we see those pharynx, we're like, this has got to be oral pharyngeal because this pharynx ain't moving at all. It still may not be a primary oral pharyngeal problem. Um, then you've got to ask yourself, what is that cricopharyngeous doing? And then why? If that cricopharyngeous is clamping down, or if we see a Zanker's diverticulum, that may still not be primary. We've still got to ask that next question, why? It's wild. So let me, let me ask you the million dollar questions, Julie, what do we do for diverticulums or what do we do for CP prominence? Yeah. So my, um, my first response to that is the esophagus has to be evaluated. So we know that all Zinker's diverticulum without exception are caused by a poorly relaxing cricopharyngeus or cricopharyngeal hypertension. I think speech pathologists are really good at pretty good. I should, I'll, I'll go pretty good, but really good at identifying the zankers, but it's like, oh, there's a zanker's diverticulum. Okay. 
but not, hey, but wait, what caused that? It's cricopharyngeal hypertension that causes that. So there is that, that intersection between the lower pharyngeal constrictor muscles and the cricopharynges, that, that point of intersection is called the Killian's dehiscence. And it's a point of weakness between these two muscle fibers. And so if the cricopharynges is not relaxing well, you get hyperpressure in the pharynx and a pouch will blow between these two fibers. That is a Zinker's diverticulum. So, so first, okay, yes, is the Zinker's there? Or is there cricopharyngeal hypertension? And then the second question is, is it symptomatic? In other words, does the, pol- the bolus pass through this uh, cricopharyngeal prominence? You know, because sometimes the cricopharyngeal prominence is, is there. We're like, wow, that's a pretty big cricopharyngeal bar, or, um, what have you. But the bolus still passes through there. Um, then the third question is, what is happening below the cricopharynges? So has the person had that evaluated, or are we able to do an esophageal sweep? And it could be a tumor. The person can have a tumor in their esophagus. The person can have a web, a ring, a narrowing, a stricture, or horrible dysmotility, reflux, a little bit of dysmotility, and that cricopharyngeus might be clamping down. Um, so I think first and foremost, sort of asking those questions to bring you along that, that train of thought. And then once you've gotten there, <laughs> um, what, what can be done about it? So you know, certainly you don't want to open up that cricopharyngeus via dilatation, via Botox, via myotomy, if the problem is a primary esophageal dysfunction, that now you've opened this 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 up and that was the last barrier to the person's lungs. And now whatever comes back up is going to just go right into the person's airway. Um, so then it really needs to be evaluated by somebody that is an expert in that area. And that uh, pretty typically, it could be a, it could be a GI doctor, it could be a laryngologist. Typically, in a university setting, um, not, nothing against our community ENT or GI folks, but if it's something they do twice a year, you know, that is not the person that should be addressing the, the Zanker's diverticulum or the cricopharyngeal hypertension. Um, there's better testing that has to be done via manometry, most likely, um, and you know, endoscopy maybe. And, and trying to then figure out how to remedy the situation. And there's, right. a lot of, there's a lot of gray areas there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we do have things that, okay, oh, we know, like a head turn can help open the cricopharyngeus, or we know, like the CTAR, you know, may help with cricopharyngeal opening. But we still have to ask those next questions of why it is happening rather than just trying to address the what if we're trying to get that cricopharyngeus to open and the person has esophageal cancer? Yeah. And I guess that's my big yeah, totally. on that soapbox because, um, you know, esophageal cancer, so adenocarcinoma of the esophagus is the most common kind of esophageal cancer. And the number one symptom is dysphagia, followed by weight loss. And, and not esophageal dysphagia necessarily. When people say dysphagia, that means difficulty swallowing. It does not tell you what stage. Um, so they might be saying, they may be doing that pharyngeal localization. When I swallow, my food gets stuck right here in my pharynx. And uh, indeed, it might not be the problem at all. Yeah. Crazy. I know. I know. So I guess I don't, I don't just love just treating the physiologic problems that we are identifying in the swallow without really seeking etiology. Um, 
And not that we can do that alone as in our profession, but at least having those questions in our mind as to why each of these things are happening. Okay, great. Reduce tongue-based retraction, reduce hyaluronic excursion, reduce clearance through the through the pharyngoesophageal opening. Why? Yeah. Um, and even, you know, it, it always strikes me all the way up to the mouth, all the way up to lingual movement, lingual peristalsis, oral dysphagia, it still could be esophageal etiology. Yeah. So, and, and even now, all these years later, I'm kind of surprised. Wow, their tongue doesn't work that well, even though <laughs> when I first identified that it's, it really looks like it's esophageal. That's crazy. Um, I'm not usually ever speechless, Julie, but you're really like blowing my mind with a lot of this stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You really should. People are probably like, "Oh my God, Teresa has had her coffee today," but I'm just like sitting here mind blown. <laughs> so this is fantastic. So so that got me thinking. What you were just saying, you know, I I'm you know want to bring it back clinically a little bit. You know, say in the skilled nursing setting where there's this constant you know pressure to pick up patients and they have a dysphagia and you have to do something. You know, but but you're kind of saying we don't really have to do something unless we know what the issue is. So I guess kind of what would your argument be for someone who is constantly getting pressured that you have to do something? I think that's a big discussion we have a lot of time online is that you'd rather, or, and some girl said something the other day about, you know, what should I do as far as exercises? And someone recommended, it sounds like they need for a further workup and it ended up being a CP bar. And yeah. And I hope they asked why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I am totally sympathetic to this plight. And um, in my role clinically, I also support our folks that are in our skilled nursing long-term care. And uh, those, those pressures are real. They exist. And I still think we do have a role here because like I said, who else is going to try to put this big picture together? Um, so I do, I do prefer an evaluation versus just a screen. However, um, if they if the folks perform the screen and they're looking in their record and they're saying, you know, I don't see anything on that pendulum that looks like it sounds like this should be oral pharyngeal. And gosh, this person has this history of, of all of this stuff that's going to go on the GI side. And then they've got all of these medications, cardiac meds and, and PPIs and this and that, that we know are going to impact swallow function. Um, so you've got this really heavy pendulum. It still might surprise you that there's something we can do oral pharyngeal wise. So I, I still love the really good, um, you know, chart review and, and looking for all these things and, and doing that pendulum. And then our clinical exam, like what are we observing? You know, what does the cranial nerve, you know, if the cranial nerve exam is normal, um, or, and if you, if you are able, you know, let's say you do get yourself in a situation where you're doing a fees on this person, the anatomic physiologic assessment on fees is paramount. Um, so, you know, we do all these things and we're still seeing, gosh, it still looks heavier on the esophageal side or I really, then it is, what can I recommend for this, this patient? Um, they probably do have oral pharyngeal changes, right? But is that really what's primary? What could the person benefit from? What have they recently been through? You know, has their has their gut just taken a, a massive blow, really, with um, they've been on several rounds of antibiotics and, um, you know, they had a GI bleed and this and that. Your gut's not going to be working well. And we've got to take that into consideration. That's a talk for a whole other day. That's yeah. a significant interest of mine. But anyway, um, you know, 
So taking all of that into consideration, then what do we think the patient needs? And if we did a clinical evaluation and still really had it so heavily weighted on the esophageal side, I'm a big proponent then of choosing the right exam. Um, and I don't mean fees are modified. I mean, it might be a GI, it may not be a GI referral, let's be serious, but, but maybe a barium swallow. It might be an upper GI series. And may, so maybe it's not a GI referral where that patient's getting sent out to a GI office that's going, really, you're going to have me see this 92-year-old? But maybe we do send them to the to the hospital for a bearing swallow. And then when this is done and it's like this massive, you know, <laughs> nothing's working well in the esophagus, we still might have something to do as far as education, et cetera. But choosing the right exam, I think, is really important. Yeah. And it's not always our our exam that I would choose. Um, and I'm not sure that's what people want to hear because I know it goes to the to sending people out, but we have a lot of ammunition from just chart review and patient history and present complaint, present uh, presentation that nursing is reporting, et cetera, yeah. to really put that picture together. Um, can you go in and talk about the different tests that they can do? Like the, like you said, barium swallow versus upper GI series versus so manometry, EGD, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to just do it off the cuff because that's not what I thought I was talking about. Oh, okay. Sorry, Julia. <laughs> no, no. Um, so let's just talk about a little bit about what's available typically. And there's lots of provocative tests that are not available to our patients, really, that are really tend to be reserved for the walkie-talkie outpatient. Um, but so, so in talking about the typical barium swallow, um, you know, fluoroscopy and x-ray test um, does have some some good benefits, like I mentioned before. It's probably a, a pretty decent test for the integrity of the esophagus as far as identifying an obstructive dysphagia. Um, your webs, your rings, your, your strictures, um, tumors, hopefully, and, um, and fair at motility. So motility issues can be... Um, inconsistent. They can be a moment in time. They may not happen on every swallow. So you don't, you may or may not see that motility disorder on that barium swallow that moment, that day. You know, I always think that the patient poop already this morning, you know, all these things that might impact that, but you may or may not see it. Um, and so it's not the gold standard for motility and you don't get anything about mucosal disease. So while you could catch an episode on reflux, you have no idea if the person has esophagitis, if they have, um, you know, not even a reflux esophagitis, a candida esophagitis, or or another form of esophagitis. Um, you don't know if they have Barrett's esophagus, if they have cellular changes from reflux. So barium swallow, really good at um, structural abnormalities of the esophagus, fair for motility, nothing for mucosa. And then you have endoscopy. Um, so this is the direct visualization of the esophagus. This is your EGD, or esophagastroduodenoscopy. And this is the superior test for looking for mucosal disease um, and for structural abnormalities. Um, now, I will say on the structural part that um, they typically can't see or can't do an endoscopy with someone with the zankers because the endoscope will try to go into the pouch and not to the esophagus. Um, I'm making all sorts of hand gestures over here, which which only three seconds Um so, so they may not be able to comment. If they do get into the esophagus, they would have already gone past where his anchors would be. They may not be able to see that. And same with other kinds of diverticulum. Um, they, the pouch may not be able to be 
dilated to be really seen on an endoscopy. But uh, endoscopy is the uh, superior test for mucosal disease, also excellent for structural abnormalities. Absolutely zippo, nothing, none on motility. So you're, well, my patient had endoscopy. They said the esophagus was normal. Tells you nothing about how the esophagus actually moves. And so if that's great, you're like, okay, so what is that ruled out? They've had an endoscopy. Okay, so it's not structural. It's not a web, web a ring, what have you. Um, and it's not mucosal disease. So it must be motility. If I already went down that path of thinking that it was highly likely. And that's actually what the literature says. That if you've ruled out a structural abnormality, you rule in dysmotility, which... All right. Yeah, just take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, um, I will bring up going back to I, I skipped, but the double um, the the upper GI series actually. So we think of the typical barium swallow, but the upper GI series for fluoroscopy adds in um, a screening for uh, stomach emptying, and that's tremendous for our patients because. Uh, you know, yes, how does the esophagus move? But guess what? If the stomach doesn't move well, then the esophagus doesn't doesn't um, empty well, then the pharynx is going to be affected. So our patients that have that, you know, early early satiety, early satiety, um, uh, you know, nausea, eating only a few bites and, and saying they're full, certainly vomiting, those are all stomach symptoms. Those are all... Um, kind of symptoms of gastroparesis or stomach symptoms. So doing a upper GI series with small bowel follow-through would be a good test for that person. Then there's manometry. So manometry is the gold standard for identifying the type and severity of motility disorders. Um, so when somebody has either a primary or secondary um, motility disorder of the esophagus, this is a really good test to then figure out the how severe it is and then what kind of management they may have. Um, so our, do our, do our older folks get manometry? No, they really don't. Right. So, you know, they may not be able to, they may not be candidates for certain testing. And then we go for the next best thing. Um, so like a barium swallow or an upper GI series would give you some information on motility. It's just not the gold standard. Um, and then there's other tests. There's, you know, pH, Monitoring. Um, our older folks are typically not having that test as well, but it's an important one and it's an important one to know. And, and we don't want to be ageist. There are definitely, I have seen people that are in their 80s and 90s undergo these more provocative tests and it, and it may be very, very appropriate. So that's a, that's like in a nutshell. All right. Well, thank you for that, Julie. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right. Um, what was, there, was there something else you were going to cover? Um, you know, I think we, I would love to just cover kind of the, the main esophageal disorders, the yeah. sort of categories of esophageal disorders, and sort of a, a little bit about the esophagus itself. I think that when we are saying that we're going to consider the esophagus, we need to really know how the esophagus works and functions. Um, you know, so just real quickly, I'll just say, you know, so the esophagus is a tube-like structure, obviously. It's a, um, about 10 inches long in an adult. And it has three areas of narrowing, so it's not a completely straight tube. It has the upper esophageal sphincter, or the um, UES, which is supposed to stay closed when you are breathing and talking and open when you swallow. Um, It has the bronchoaortic constriction, which is um, kind of everything passing through the mediastinal area makes a little indent on your esophagus. It's a very common area for 
pill-induced dysphagia. It's a common area for food bowls obstruction um, at that bronchoiliary constriction. And then the LES, so those three areas of, of narrowing, the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, it's innervated via the vagus nerve, uh, which is not a good sensory nerve. It, the motor innervation is, um, is, is really better. The sensory is not a real, I, I tell people, not, it's not a good pinpoint nerve, and that's why people... Um, you know, what they complain of and where they feel it, that, that concept of, of sort of pharyngeal reference or localization is not accurate. Um, but the enteric nervous system is a big part of the esophageal motility, and that's the, the brain of the gut. So there's two local nervous systems in the esophagus, um, the Meissner's plexus and the myenteric plexus, and it pretty much makes the esophagus work on its own, you know, very little reason for the central nervous system to get involved. Lots of disease processes that can interfere with that local nervous system. Um, really so much interesting stuff about the brain of the gut. But yeah. You know, another time, but <laughs> if I, if you can indulge me for like 30 seconds, I'll just, mention, of course, you know, we, we know this gut brain connection and, and, and while we, we, it's been known for a long, long time, certainly learning more about it. And we, we've known kind of the relationship between, you know, we get nervous and, and we have an exam to study for, or we're in a, you know, traumatic situation. We get GI symptoms, you know, so we get, we get nausea, we get diarrhea, we get upset stomach. So we know that kind of brain to gut connection, but what's been, um, a significant source of research in the last at least 10 years, um, but not, not getting word out enough, I feel like is the, the gut to brain connection. Um, where we know that gut, gut dysfunction affects our brains. Um, and so much of this being looked at now, and it's really, really fascinating stuff. So, for example, um, the, the study of the gut microbiome and all this um, bacteria that, that, that live in our gut. We have more bacteria than we do cells in our body. And how they're now finding, for example, um, that gut bacteria has been found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So literally, you know, um, that connection between the brain and the gut. Um, so if your gut's not working well, your brain may not work well. If your brain's not working well, your gut may not be working well. Yeah. Um, it's really pretty fascinating. Yeah. So I've always had just kind of an interest in nutrition and stuff like that. And that stuff just totally fascinates me. You know, now, now all those studies, like you said, about Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's disease coming out with all these, like you said, gut brain connections is yes. wild. Yes. And really blowing um, old theories out of the water, you know, really major shifts in neuroscience, um, which is really kind of interesting. Yeah. That's a digression a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So there's two primary stages of um, esophageal function, and, and that is primary, or I shouldn't say stages, I'm sorry, um, two parts to the esophageal stage, primary peristalsis and secondary peristalsis. And this really means the contractile wave of the bolus down the esophagus. So primary peristalsis is induced by swallowing, and you get relaxation of the upper and lower esophagus. Um, the upper esophageal sphincter and lower esophageal sphincter. Secondary peristalsis is induced by distension. So whatever the primary peristalsis, primary peristalsis didn't get, or if somebody refluxes, the esophagus senses just at or above the area of distension in the esophagus and creates another contractile wave from that point down. And you get LES relaxation only. 
Um, the reason that those are important to know is that when these are disrupted, that's when you get dysmotility. So when primary and secondary peristalsis is disrupted. And pretty much, I hate to say everybody, but almost all of the patients that we see that are in an older cohort are going to have some degree of esophageal dysmotility. Um, and it's important for us to know that. So that when we when they have a, a barium study and they talk a lot about tertiary contractions, that's non-useful. That's non-propulsive contractions of the esophagus, sometimes referred to as spasm. And a certain amount of tertiary contractions can certainly be within the normal range. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly how much it takes to be pathologic. For one person, it might be very little of tertiary contractions and they have dysphagic symptoms. And for someone else, they're not feeling it at all, that they've got massive amounts of um, dysmotility and tertiary contractions, and yet they don't have sensory symptoms of that. And that's sort of an individual kind of bio-individuality concept there. So there's lots and lots of symptoms of esophageal dysfunction. Um, again, we're going we're gonna to look at that chart history, that chart review and the history, but we also want to ask about symptoms, you know, things like pain with swallowing or heartburn, regurgitation, dis distinguishing regurgitation from vomiting, because don't we get that and we see that in people's charts? Uh, refer to speech pathology for vomiting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gee, thanks. Yeah. But it is different than regurgitation. Is it just coming back up as if it were just chewed and swallowed um, at the reappearance of that food? Or does it have, um, you know, was there nausea involved? Was there retching involved? Um, and then what's coming back up to be able to ask people that? You know, is it acidic? You know that it's partially digested. You know, um, there's you can have, actually, <laughs> from the liver to the larynx, you can have pancreatic, pancreatic enzymes, um, that are then regurgitated, and, and that's like pure battery acid. Oh, goodness. Certainly if it ends up in the, in the larynx or the lungs. But um, mucus and the complaint of mucus, um, you know, phlegm, that kind of stuff, belching, respiratory and laryngeal symptoms can all be symptoms of esophageal dysfunction. Right. Bleeding, bleeding can be, but hopefully we're not seeing the people that are, that are having GI bleeds. Um, so the disorders of the esophagus then, kind of in a nutshell, I've sort of categorized these. So there's disorders of the cervical esophagus. And, uh, you know, fluoroscopy and manometry here would probably be some of the best examinations. There's obstructive dysphagus. In other words, it, cause an, it causes an obstruction to the bolus flow. Those are your webs, your rings, your strictures, your tumors. There's motility disorders. You can have a primary motility disorder versus a secondary motility disorder. Um, the best, again, is manometry there for testing. There's mucosal disease. So there's um, different levels of different kinds of esophagitis um, and Barrett's esophagus. There's anatomic variants. So there's you can have anatomic variants such as um, you know, different di diverticulum, not only Zanker's diverticulum, mid-esophageal diverticulum, lower esophageal diverticulum. Uh, and then there's LES dysfunction and GERD, uh, really where you're talking about either the LES relaxing too often and allowing constant contents from the stomach to come back up, or it's too tight and it doesn't allow relaxation and full clearance of the bubbles to the stomach. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Julie. <laughs> You're so welcome. I, I feel like this is like a whole nother world of dysphagia that so many people are just 
I'm probably going to get a lot of, a lot of hate mail about this. Like, no one ever told me any of this. Like, <laughs> so yeah, this is, you know, yeah. I get that too. I have actually <laughs> had people and I, and I sympathize because I taught this myself. Nobody taught it to me. I taught it to myself. And uh, I've had people in my courses actually come up to me and cry and say, I, everything that you've been saying, I didn't know. And the things you're saying not to do are exactly the way that I've practiced. And, you know, my answer to that is I think we all need to be on the same team and we need to help each other. Absolutely. No criticism, you know, um, one step at a time, one step forward. We just have to, okay. So tomorrow, (laughs) yeah, let's think about what you can do differently starting tomorrow and keep on progressing in that, you know, in that fashion, just one step forward. Absolutely. And support each other. Absolutely. All right. Did you have anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm teasing. Um, you know, I, so I will mention, I will mention one more thing. So the disorders of the cervical esophagus are in our direct scope of practice. So that upper one third of the esophagus, that cervical esophagus or UES is in our direct uh, scope of practice, according to both Medicare and ASHA. So, you know, if we have suspicions there, and we should, and we need to, we can document what our suspicions are pretty frankly. And, um, you know, certainly we want confirmation with the radiologist, but we better know our stuff. We can't wait for the radiologist to tell us what we see. And we also need to make sure we know that the radiologist is not an expert in the functionality of the swallow. So yeah, anatomy and, and gross physiology, yes, but not, not, you know, swallow function. So if we're waiting for the radiologist to tell us if that's what's causing the patient's dysphagia, they may or may not have some input there. Um, so those disorders in the cervical esophagus, those are things like, you know, like I mentioned before, cricopharyngeal hypertension, which may present itself as a prominent cricopharyngeal, cricopharyngeal bar, kind of bulged or clumped appearance of the cricopharyngeus. And, and it's not just the, the, the bar there. It's, you know, did it open timely in a timely fashion? Did it open um, wide enough amplitude and did it open long enough duration? And you can have any of those fail and cause dysphagia and subsequent problems in the pharynx. Um, so it's not all about the cricopharyngeal bar. Uh, but also in this, this category would be Zanker's diverticulum, which is actually considered a pharyngeal diverticulum because it's above the cricopharyngeus. It's between the fibers of the inferior pharyngeal constrictor and the cricopharyngeus. Then there's Killian's Jameson diverticulum. Never had heard of that before I started. It's an Irish one. It is. Killian's <laughs> Jameson. Um, but that's a, a diverticulum that's just below the cricopharyngeus and um, can be unilateral or bilateral. Often people are misdiagnosing these as, as, as Sankers, so you do have to, to find where the, the cricopharyngeus is and watch how that opens and closes and then notice where your pouch is to identify the, the KJ diverticulum. Um, cervical osteophytes that can impact, obviously we know in the pharynx, but also UES opening and cervical esophagus. Um, Anterior cervical esophageal webs are another one. So you can have a web on the anterior wall and uh, usually right across from the cricopharyngeus. And then all of the aspects of laryngopharyngeal reflux that might impact this area as well. Crazy. 
<laughs> so we're supposed to know all that stuff, people. Right. You need to know it. Right, right. <laughs> is there, so you mentioned the various diverticulums. Is there different, are they all treated differently? I guess, is that the, the importance of knowing the distinction between them? Um, so it's really what was the cause of each of these. So the cause of the zancers, like I mentioned, is the cricopharyngeal hypertension. Um, we don't exactly know what causes the uh, Killian's-Jameson diverticulum, but a mid-esophageal diverticulum is is caused by dysmotility. So this the circular smooth muscles in the esophagus, you know, there's these rings of muscles, and if you don't have great movement or motility through your esophagus, you can blow a diverticulum through between these um, these rings. And then the lower esophageal diverticulum um, is typically caused by a too tight LES. And so you can get kind of this little mushroom balloony diverticulum that occurs from the LES not relaxing properly. So rarely are these resected. Uh, they will resect, as people know. They will do a Zanker's repair when it's so huge you could drive a car through it and pretty much <laughs> renders the swallow useless. Um, but hopefully what we, we can figure out is if they're small, how to remedy the problem via, um, why is the cricofringes not opening and what can we do about that, uh, before this thing gets bigger and doesn't have to be resected. Um, Killian's Jameson diverticulum are not typically resected, but there have, they do do those if they are causing significant problems. I actually just had a guy that I referred for that significant problems as a result of the Killian's Jameson. It had been years and his swallow function was getting worse and worse. Um, but they're not typically resected. And the mid-esophageal and lower esophageal diverticulum are not. There's too, just too big of a risk for perforating the esophagus. And again, knowing that the underlying cause is motility and poor relaxing LES. Okay, cool. Um, you had mentioned... I Greek here, but... No, sorry. this is wonderful. No, no. And that's just kind of why I wanted to, to see what the importance of the difference or the... Yeah, the importance of the differences. Um, you said a little bit before that you would talk about kind of some of the things we can see on fees to help yes. tip us off to. Yes, yeah. let's let's talk about that. So yeah. I love fees. I'm a fees clinician and um, I do a ton of modified barium swallow studies and I feel like both are so important. Um, you know, I, I do. I still am a proponent of choosing the right exam. Um, so I, like I said, it may not be either of them <laughs> if, if that's not the right exam, but on these, we can't forget about the esophagus. And I think, you know, being a clinician that does both every day, um, I have those modifieds to remind me not to forget the esophagus, but I do feel like you can get in a bit of a fees zone or you're going to be a person who learned fees who never knew modifieds, um, and then you might forget the esophagus altogether. And I actually, I asked this question on an interview the other day, and then somebody said I was mean. I wasn't trying to be mean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said to the, the candidate, I said, so, so you do fees. It's so great. You know, tell me what considerations, you know, you have for whether the esophagus could be part of the um, swallowing problem when you do fees. And I stumped her terribly. And I did it. Oh. Oh. But, in any event. So let yeah. me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do talk about that. So um, so certainly there are visual signs, endoscopic uh, signs and findings that are suggestive of laryngopharyngeal reflux or LPR. And it doesn't even mean LPR is the primary diagnosis that's going on, um, but we want to look for those signs. So that's kind of, if you know the um, uh, Bolefsky again and Kaufman uh, POSMA, the, the reflux finding score, 
I do think it's a really important thing for us to do. You can't do the reflex binding score in a bubble. It's not, oh, it's a high reflex binding score. This person automatically has reflux, but it's part of the clinical picture. It's a good idea. So to be looking for these endoscopic findings to have a way of sort of scoring. Um, when we see the person has a normal anatomic physiologic exam, so even folks that have cognitive deficits um, and dementia can do a pretty simple anatomic physiologic exam where you go through the structures with different movements. And this was really highlighted by uh, Susan Langmore. So it's, it's her stuff. But really doing a, a good anatomic physiologic assessment before you give boluses is going to give us a lot of information. So if you see, wow, they had a really pretty good anatomic physiologic assessment. They had bilateral movement of the, of the base of the tongue that was equal and, and, um, and strong. And we saw good lateral pharyngeal wall movement when they did the high pitched E and when, um, you know, they can hold their breath and all, all these good things that we can look for in that assessment. Then when you give boluses and the person is requiring multiple swallows to clear the bolus, if there's for, poor pharyngeal clearance, that should give you some indication. Hmm, maybe this is, you know, UES dysfunction or maybe there's esophageal dysfunction. If I'm now seeing, even though those really nice brisk movements with the tongue base were there, they've got residue in the vollecula. Um, certainly residue throughout the pharynx, and now we know the mouth, can still be signs of esophageal dysfunction. But sure, if you see more residue at the post-pricoid region, you know, that might be another indication. Any backflow during the exam should give you, and it doesn't mean reflux, um, but any backflow during the exam should really be considered abnormal. Um, on a fees, we are not seeing the cricopharyngeous. The cricopharyngeous is a couple centimeters below that what we see is that arc on our fees is really inferior pharyngeal constrictor muscle at the top of the UES. Um, so we can't see the cricopharyngeous. So when we see backflow, that bolus may not have even gotten through the cricopharyngeous. So it's not a, oh, they must be refluxing. We don't know where it's been. We don't know where it got to. But it should certainly give you credence for knowing that um, there's a problem going on below that inferior pharyngeal constrictor muscle. Yeah. Um, if there's a residue in the pharynx or delay in swallow as the exam progresses, and some of this was done by uh, Maggie Lee Huck Huckabee and Susan Butler, um, it's more likely to be esophageal and cricopharyngeal dysfunction. Those things can happen where, you know, traditionally 23 years ago, I was taught if the residue increases the exam progressed or there's a delay in swallow as the exam progressed, it was probably fatigue. And that's pretty much been blown out of the water. And I know that other folks have talked about muscle fatigue. Um, and it doesn't mean it has to be only when the esophagus fills up. So if, if the residue is getting worse or the swallow initiation is progressing, it can be via the esophagus. Belching throughout the exam. Um, report of food sticking when nothing, nothing is visualized in the pharynx is another thing. So if, if you know what the person, one of the person's symptoms is that, that food is getting stuck in their throat and, and you've said to them, I want you to tell me if you feel anything sticking, you can be asking that question throughout your exam. I want you to let me know if anything's sticking and, and kind of try to, to correlate with what you see. It's not going to be perfect, but you can correlate with what you see. Um, Another big one is coughing episodes with no laryngeal penetration or aspiration. So that's very highly indicative of a reflux cough. And so, you know, on a modified, we always think, oh, they must, something must have happened when the floor went off. Um, and same with the fees. We're like, well, gosh, I didn't see anything go in. But now you're looking, you know, did they, 
did they aspirate? And it's very possible they didn't. But once you start giving boluses, it could be the very first bolus, and that LES is relaxing, um, the person may be getting a trigger of a reflux cough. And it doesn't have to be from backflow. It could just be from relaxation of the LES. Um, and, of course, I think laryngeal penetration and aspiration, when you really don't have a reason for why it should have happened, <laughs> I think is another thing to be considered um, as possible esophageal involvement. All right. I love this. That was great, Julie. That, that makes me feel a lot better because I feel like I know what I'm doing with these. Yay! So. <laughs> Yay, you! So, so, like, the first part was totally mind-blowing, but I know what I'm doing with seeing these. <laughs> Yay! I feel good about a lot of, yeah, I feel good about a lot of referrals I've made and things like that. So, <laughs> Very good. Very good. good. All right. This was awesome. If you or your facility is interested in a true high-definition fees endoscopy system, please consider contacting our sponsor, that's EndoHD, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. They have a fee system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. EndoHD can be a case-portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program. Contact them today at ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Sir, anything else on your PowerPoint to cover? Um, no, I think we kind of made it through I was, as much as I was trying to get through that I thought I could do in an hour. That's all right. I think it was more than an hour. but Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> oh, my God. It was, it was wonderful, though. So, well, thank you so much, Julie. This was incredible. So... Um, you do, you do, so you said you do teach this as a course. Is that right? I do. So I do, um, I do a two hour webinar. I also do, um, you know, if people want a one day course, I have a six hour course that I put together. And then the course that I put on, um, is a two, my, my full course is a two day course. It's 16 hours. Oh, wow. Um, do you have any of those scheduled coming up or? I do. I do. And actually, um, my brochure just came out and is, is I got a kind of late start on it, but my brochure just came out. So that is going to be available through um, Carolina Speech Pathology. Okay. They advertise it or me, if you know me. Um, okay. I put it out myself and then they also help me kind of. Advertise. Okay. Cool. All right. So people can check that out if they're interested. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Julie. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.